Welcome to AudioPie's English Literature and Language Show. You can dip into huge chunks of over 19 series for free and learn on the go. Happy listening, everyone. Welcome to episode 5 of this series on Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Last episode, we talked about the central characters of the novel and what they are intended to represent to us as readers. But that's only half the story. Just as important as the characters, if not more so, are the major themes of a novel. Without identifying the key themes, it becomes very difficult to do a complete and considered literary analysis of a text. Each genre often has common themes, but they're never exclusive to that one genre. Science, for example, is a theme commonly encountered in the Gothic tradition as well as science fiction. The difference is often found in how different genres approach that shared theme. Gothic writing, for example, is often uncomfortable with science and works to portray a darker side, whereas more utopian science fiction might focus on the wonders brought about by advanced technology. I say utopian science fiction because, as we already mentioned in a previous podcast, There's plenty of science fiction that's obsessed with the darker side of technological advancement. Remember, there are plenty of academics who would describe Frankenstein as the first science fiction novel, and this is not a novel that believes science has all the answers. We've started with the example of science because it's a major theme within Frankenstein. Science, more specifically enlightenment thinking, is pitted against nature and romantic thinking throughout the novel. That constant discomfort between scientific advancement, discovering everything that is knowable, and a more natural way of living, accepting that some things should be beyond humanity, is what drives Frankenstein to create the monster, and also what turns him away from his creation when he realizes he's been successful. As well as science versus nature, one of the major themes of the novel has to be the gothic and sublime. This novel is soaked in gothic tropes. The isolated figure, a monstrous adversary, unknowable secrets and terrifying landscapes. These landscapes, in turn, lead to feelings of the sublime in both Frankenstein and his monster, and these feelings drive them to further horrific acts. Mortal man is also pitted against the divine in this novel. Frankenstein has done what only gods should be able to do by bringing his monster into existence, and he is constantly haunted by conflicting feelings about his actions and how to correct those wrongs. This in turn links in closely with the themes of parenting and birth, which we mentioned in the last episode. Frankenstein is in conflict with himself throughout the novel. Not only as a result of the monster's creation, but also because Frankenstein feels an obligation to the monster as its creator and parent. Finally, there is of course the theme of monstrosity. What is interesting about Frankenstein as a novel is the depths to which it explores this idea. Often, monstrosity is presented either as a physical or emotional state. In Frankenstein, however, we experience monstrosity of both types. The monster has an outward appearance that is terrifying, 
but initially at least is a gentle soul. Whereas Frankenstein is capable of monstrous behaviour despite his unassuming appearance. Okay, that's a quick introduction to each of the key themes of the novel. Now it's time to get into them in more detail. Let's start with this idea of monstrosity. Let's. As I was saying, the theme of monstrosity in Frankenstein is noteworthy because it doesn't just approach it from one direction. Rather, we're given a nuanced insight into both emotional and physical monstrosity. Let's focus on physical monstrosity to start with. As we move through the novel, pay attention to the way the monster is described. He's human, but not quite. And we as readers are meant to be disturbed by him and what he represents, namely, the other. The other is a common trope in Gothic literature. Essentially, the other is anything different from ourselves that is unknowable in some way. Often this other is associated with danger, and close proximity to it can bring on madness or horrific acts. The monster is a great example of the other given physical shape, something only allowed into the world because its creator was convinced he was making something beautiful. This bait-and-switch that Frankenstein experiences actually enhances our sense of horror as readers. Based on how Frankenstein talks about his research, we're expecting a wondrous and beautiful creature, the product of advanced science, and instead we get a horror. This ties in with the battle between science and romantic thinking. Shelley is illustrating with the creation of the monster how the pursuit of new and beautiful things can actually produce horrors and put humanity at risk. Physically, the monster is associated throughout the novel with bleak, sublime landscapes. The first time we, as readers, encounter it in person is near Mont Blanc, and throughout the novel the monster reappears in the mountains or the barren Arctic Circle. This is no coincidence. These areas are threatening, and would have been associated with risk, even death, especially at the time Shelley was writing in. We're left in no doubt from Frankenstein's description and the monster's setting that he is a monstrous creation. However, the monster's physical appearance is challenged by his emotional mind. As we move through the novel, we discover that the monster is well-read and educated. He's well-versed in Milton, Goethe and Plutarch, and speaks eloquently on a range of subjects. In fact, the monster's speech opens us up to the idea that he is a tragic figure, grieving over his rejection and abandonment. The monster's emotional availability and description of continued loneliness and isolation, contrasted against the behaviour of Victor Frankenstein, invite us as readers to consider who the real monster is in the novel. That Frankenstein becomes as much a monster as his own creation, perhaps even more, leads us nicely to that second major theme of parenting and birth. The critic Anne K. Meller suggested that Frankenstein is, first and foremost, a book about what happens when a man tries to procreate without a woman. Remember in the previous episode when we mentioned that the novel has a notable absence of fleshed-out or solid female characters? 
That fact further lends itself to the idea that this is a novel about a man who uses science to go against nature and the natural way of things. To make it even more obvious, let's not forget that Frankenstein literally destroys a female version of the creature to prevent them creating more. What do you make of this as a reader? Do you see how all of the themes are starting to tangle with one another and form a more interesting idea? Keep that in mind when you're writing your own criticism. Referencing other themes when discussing another can create a more well-rounded and convincing argument. Let's take that idea of a man producing offspring without the involvement of a woman. Can you think of another major theme we've already mentioned that would nicely intertwine with this? Science versus nature, perhaps? Frankenstein wouldn't have been able to commit such an unnatural act as creating life from corpses without his scientific knowledge. This battle between science and nature is central in Frankenstein, not just because it reflects popular thinking at the time, but also because it serves as an in to another battle between the mortal and the divine. Remember in our episode on context, when we talked about the time in which Shelley was writing. This was a time characterised by major political and cultural upheaval. Published in 1831, Frankenstein is embedded in the exploration of two opposing cultural, philosophical and artistic movements, the Enlightenment and Romanticism. The Enlightenment is characterised by intellectualism, the search for knowledge, the metaphorical shining of light into the dark, rationality and scientific examination. Frankenstein, at the beginning of the novel, is a gentleman of the Enlightenment. He believes that by bringing something back to life, he can stop disease and put an end to death, thereby benefiting society with his discoveries. But of course, that is not to be. And as things begin to go wrong, the romantic point of view begins to slip into the novel. Romanticism rebelled against the constraints of rationality and reason that the Enlightenment put in place. Enlightenment artists and writers strove for symmetry, order and harmony. Romantic artists emphasised the individual and emotions as the governing forces of mankind. The Romantic movement is inspired by surprise, intensity of emotion and sensation. All of these are triggered by the sublime and gothic imagery throughout the novel, acting as a contrast to Frankenstein's early scientific experiments. The various quests that the different characters of the novel go on are great examples of the opposition between Romanticism and Enlightenment. Both Frankenstein and Captain Walton are on a quest of knowledge and discovery, whereas the monster is initially on a more romantic quest for love and emotional understanding before his thoughts turn to revenge. Shelley almost certainly intended this novel to be a warning against scientific progress. It urges the reader to be more critical and cautious in their search for knowledge, suggesting we shouldn't disrupt the natural forces and codes of the world. Remember again the book's subtitle, The Modern Prometheus? That, before anything else, should serve as a warning to the reader that this is not a tale where science and scientific thinking 
results in a happy ending. Speaking of Prometheus, as critics, we can extend the battle between Enlightenment and Romantic thinking to the battle between the mortal and divine worlds. As we read through the novel, we'll encounter many instances in which the relationship between man and God is challenged. The most obvious, of course, being Frankenstein's creation of life. These two opposed ideas are used to draw our attention to moments where humanity is encroaching or transgressing upon the territory of God. Keep your eye out for them as you read the novel. They're often highlighted by biblical images or references. The monster, in particular, makes frequent references to Milton's Paradise Lost and self-awaredly links himself to Adam and the devil. The final theme for us to consider in this episode is the sublime and gothic. These are each themselves creative offshoots of romantic thinking. Both tap into our deepest fears and overwhelming emotion to create impact in us, the readers. The sublime as a term was first put forward by Edmund Burke in a treatise titled The Sublime and the Beautiful. Whatever is fitted in any sort to excite the ideas of pain and danger, that is to say, whatever is in any sort terrible, or is conversant about terrible objects, or operates in a manner analogous to terror, is a source of the sublime. The sublime is not only the physical feat of death, but the recognition that we, in relation to natural objects, are insignificant. Romantics harness the sublime as a way to consider and interact with the world around us. Sublime experiences were believed to lift us to new heights, both physically and philosophically. In particular, oceans and mountains were considered core features of the sublime. Think about this in relation to the landscapes of the text. How many different sublime settings do we encounter? Also ask yourself, can the monster, described so often as towering and intimidating, be considered as sublime? Look for similarities in the way he and sublime landscapes are described. What do you think? The Gothic has a lot in common with the sublime. Again, it takes advantage of intense feelings such as terror and revulsion. The two complement each other well, and it's not uncommon to encounter one with the other. However, while the sublime is interested in the disruption of harmony and peace of mind, the Gothic focuses on disruptions in the social or political space. Whereas romantic literature aims to elicit feelings of personal pleasure from natural beauty, Gothic fiction takes the same approach with the goal of creating delight and pleasure from confusion and terror. Just as it uses the romantic style to encourage that sense of delight, Gothic writing uses the sublime to access aspects of our humanity which we might otherwise be unaware of or unwilling to acknowledge. In short, Gothic writing shows us the darker parts of ourselves and our sense of the sublime to make those dark parts seem massive and terrifying. That's enough for this episode. Next time we'll be starting on the text itself, working through its parts and taking a closer look at key moments. If you haven't already, 
we recommend reading the entire novel before beginning the next section. It will make it much easier for you to understand and follow some of what we discuss. See you next time. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Don't forget to search for and listen to the next episode in the series to build your topic knowledge. Hit the Acast Plus link in the show description to become a premium supporter and unlock access to every episode in every series for as long as you need. We also make GCSE and A-level content for history, RE, sociology and psychology. Happy listening, everyone.